This episode is sponsored by Podgo. We use Podgo to monetize all of our podcasts and get paid within 24 hours. So if you're a podcast, want to get paid, be sure to check out Podgo. That's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. That's Podgo dot C-O. And be sure to enter our name in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. See you guys in the episode. It's the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Math and Physics podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we welcome you back to episode number 70, where today... We are going to be talking about one of the most fundamental mathematical objects there is, the function. And with us today, as you, the viewers may be able to see, we have Matt Cater. Applause it's there. Good to see you all. Long time, it's real good long to see you time. So um, finally, nice to have you back on the podcast, Matt. It's great to I be here. The last time was, what, episode 11 or something like that? Long time ago, right? Yeah. Long time Is this the third time? Third. Probably think the third. third time, right? Nice. I yeah. think, no, you're definitely the most reoccurring guest on our podcast. I yes. think we could keep it like that, you know, casual. I, I appreciate casual that. Guest. So that's that's awesome. But uh, before we dive in today, let's get into the news. So quick update first on our giveaway. You may have noticed that there wasn't a post that got posted last week. Don't worry. It will be posted now this week. <laughs> a little slow on that. Um Apologies, apologies, but this week, stay tuned on Instagram, everything relating to the giveaway, how do you win that shirt that, you know, we posted, stay tuned. Boom. So yeah, that's that giveaway news. Any other news that uh, we want to get into? Downloads, Instagram, um, Well, we uh, we hit 11,000 followers on Spotify yesterday, so thank you everybody. It's amazing. That. Make sure to follow the podcast wherever you're listening to this and also come on YouTube subscribe we're almost at a thousand subscribers and uh yeah make sure to like the video all that stuff rayhan yeah let's get into the comment of the week comment so of the you week. guys want to be the comment of the week super simple just comment on the episode you know we had some re I, I will i will say this we had some really really nice comments this week all well-rounded i'm gonna read out one but i'm gonna i'm gonna shout out another one because i want to talk about it but so the comment of the week this week is by none other. Oh, it's highlighted as well by uh, Tejas. I believe we have he has been the comment of the week before, or or they have been the comment of the week before, and they say you guys deserve so much more recognition for the work you are doing. Great work. P.S. I've been following the podca- podcast on Spotify since a long time, and I really love your work. Thank you. So, so thank much. you, Tejas. Thank you for that wonderful comment. And one thing I wanted to shout out is one person mentioned that uh, we stick to that one hour timeline. Now, that's not really a time that we stick to. It's And they mentioned that, you know, there are other podcasters that do longer times. And he gave an example of Lex Friedman, for example, like another science podcast that does like two, three hour, four hour podcasts. And, he, and I guess I see your point. But what do you think about that, Parker? Because I think for now, there's no restriction. It's just mm-hmm. like how much ever we really realistically have to talk about. So I think, far, uh, I think our 
our spans are around an hour. I think usually the reason why we don't go more than an hour is because we have like things to do <laughs> and you know <laughs> things to do like we usually plan out we're like okay we're gonna record the podcast at this time when we're both available and then you know we we have you know places to go things to do so mm-hmm. usually when we end the podcast it's usually because like we have something to do right so I mean if we could talk for longer we would but uh, yeah, I think one hour, one hour, 15 mm. minutes is a good length anyways. So yeah, I think I think though with guests in the future, we never know where that can go because with guests, there's a whole new factor to now consider, right? Maybe we're talking about the guests themselves. Maybe they, you know, I don't know what kind of contribution they made, obviously, depending on the guest, because, you mm-hmm. know, some some of those podcasts go for four hours, some go for an hour and a half, right? So it depends on the guest. But I guess I like I like what you're saying, Parker, when it's like two of us. And when we're talking, usually we do kind of plan out our day in that way. So I guess I guess we're okay with the hour long for now, right? I think we are. Okay, let's get into it. Let's get into the podcast. I don't think there's any news, right, remaining? I think that's right. it. So let's start. Let's start with functions. So, well, what is a function? Before we wanted to talk about that, I think we had a little bit of, a, of an intro, a little backstory. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone wants to. Maybe you want to start with that, Parker. Yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit when we were doing, uh, when we were talking about proofs and things like that, or types of numbers. I don't. I don't remember. But um, so it's important to know. This is very basic. What an ordered pair is, and so essentially, an ordered pair is just well, you know, it's in the name. It's ordered, meaning the order matters. And then there's two elements in that pair. And the two elements don't have to come from the same set. For example, you could have the first element in the pair is a real number and the second one is an integer. It doesn't matter. But as long as the order is preserved and uh, yeah, they come in a, in, a, in a group. For example, everybody knows what a graph is. If I tell you the point one comma two, you can kind of imagine where that is on the graph. It's not the same as the point two comma one. That's kind of the, in the sense that, um, or it, it illustrates how the order matters of of the pair, right? So that's mm-hmm. that's pretty much what it is. But you can put anything, right? You could put a duck and a bear, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter what the elements are or what sets they come from. But yeah, mm-hmm. you just put them, boom in a in a in a in a group together and there you go that's what an ordered pair is and the main the main reason this is this even becomes important is because here we start to understand the relationship between these two uh sets right mm-hmm. that's i i guess i don't know really where the da- the the bear and the duck would come from like i don't, <laughs> I don't really know if that's the best maybe example like of predator and prey or something like that you no know? i mean okay okay i guess no that is valid I guess it could describe a certain set. But again, the main idea is just to see, well, what is the relationship between the first and the second variable in this situation? So Mm -hmm. in the situation where we have pairs, well, there are only two variables to consider. And that's usually when we... When we picture in our in our head, we're thinking of that 2D graph, right? Because we're usually thinking of ordered pairs. We're thinking of only two numbers. So we start with that and we're like, okay, well, this is one ordered pair. Let me list every single ordered pair from this set. 
right? Now, the set might have many, many variables, many numbers, as you, as you said. One can be real numbers. One can be integers, right? So every single pair that go together and you graph them out, and then that gives you some type of relationship, right, between both of those variables or both of those sets. And that yeah. is what we call a relation. So relations right. can be pretty chaotic because there's not really a rule. Well, there is a rule, but there's no like restrictions. You know what I mean? So for example, if you have a, you have a relation, and by the way, a relation is a set of ordered pairs. And what makes it a relation is that the first variable has some connection to the second variable. So for example, we have, an, we have our set of ordered pairs where the first element is like a person. And so it's from the, from the set, the element comes from the set of like people. And the second variable is a city. And the relation between the first and the second is that the person has once in their life lived in that city. So clearly this is not a function because one person can live or has can have lived in multiple cities, mm -hmm. right? So every input does not have a unique output, but you can still call it a relation because you can put all of these pairs of people to cities in a bag, in a set, and that entire set is a relation. And well, why is it not a function? Again, that function is very specifically defined, right? Because I think I think we kind of gave a little a little thing there, Parker. You mentioned that mm -hmm. oh, it's because one person could have lived in many cities. So well, how is a function defined? That's inherently defined, and I think we're gonna get into this definition soon of injectivity, right? How one so if we have two if we have these two sets, one point from set A, let's say we have set A and set B. So one object from set A cannot point to more than one object in set B. And that is simply a characteristic of what we call a function, right? So every point there must, every output has a unique input. Yes, because, and then that's the whole idea of injectivity, right? Parker, you have wait, a questionable face on I don't, wait, I, I don't, I don't. Is that not it? I don't think injectivity is is like necessary for being a function. Yeah, I think but, it's a property if, if, that if it's a function not injective, can have. If it's not in okay, it's a property of a function, yes. But if it's not injective, that means one point again can point to two different points, which just inherently does not make it a function. Right. So, so I, I'm just going to clear something up here. So, yeah. right, it's the reverse of that, right? So you can have two inputs. Pardon me. Two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two inputs go into the same output, right? That's, that's fine. fine. No, that's fine. That's fine. That's yeah, fine. So I'm you, saying one input goes into two outputs. That's not a function anymore. Yeah, so that's not injectivity. The first thing that's I say would be injectivity. Mm -hmm. Oh, is that yeah. the other? Okay, I think we're... Yeah, don't, don't worry, okay, don't worry. Just, yeah. So There's a unique output for every input, but there's not a unique input for every output. Yeah. But isn't that injectivity? Because yes, yeah, so, injective... so don't worry. This is the first uh, the first thing you say it is an objective fucking function, right? Yes. But the other way around is not necessarily true. You don't need that. You just need one output for every input. You don't need one in input for every, every output. Okay. 
That makes sense. Okay, that makes sense. A little clarification there on those functions for those. Yeah, <laughs> like the, the condition that you stated yeah. is necessary for being a function, but mm. it is not called injectivity, right? Yeah. So okay. it, if it's a function, then every input, like every input doesn't necessarily need an output, but if it does, then it's unique or not unique. There's only one of them. There's not more. There's not two outputs for one input. Hmm. And okay, to, just to clear this up, it's it's pretty much called the vertical line test. <laughs> if yes. you if we're talking about like one dimension, but this also graphs. only works in like, I guess it works in higher dimensions too. But it's 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 a lot more visible in your two D, like I guess, vertical yeah. line test, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what what is a vertical line test? Maybe just explain it a little bit. Well, if you put a vertical line along your graph and you sweep it, if at any point. They're, they're, the line intersects the graph twice, then it's not a function. It has to just intersect the graph of the function one time for every single mm-hmm. every single point. Right, so that's that's an important thing to point out because when you talked about relations, where you have just a list of order period, oftentimes it's listable. That would assume it's countable, but mm-hmm. we don't have to even do that. We'll just picture it as a list, a big group with all the order pairs in it. A graph is well-defined in that case. You can graph a relation. That would be something that looks like the graph of a 1D function or a real input, real output. But that's something that's not going to satisfy the vertical line test, mm-hmm. right? So a graph is always well-defined, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you can analyze these graphs to see if the relation is more than just a relation, but as well a function. Yeah. So that's why I think that's graphs are really important. And that's something so I was... gra- Yeah. So I- I explain a little more about because wh- because I think we have spoken about in a previous episode like images and graphs and stuff. But mm-hmm. Maybe like let let's take a little deeper dive because you were you were getting into it before I cut you off. Yeah. So I think a graph is one of the most indispensable tools in describing a function, right? When we want to get visual visual intuition, it always works. When we want to get understandings of calculus, for that matter, it always works. That's kind of where it's coming from, right? Mm-hmm. So what I was telling you guys before we even went on the air is um, the fact that we're talking about functions, probably I said is the second most fundamental um, object of math. The first being a set. And the reason I said that is because at least in set theory, functions are sets. And what set is that? It's the graph. Anything you want to know about a function can told, can be told from the graph and vice versa. There are isomorphic in that sense. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that super rigorously at all, but I mean any information the graph of a function can give you the same way the rule and the codomain and the domain can give you, which is just what the function is, right? It's a domain, codomain, and rule. That that little group of info is all wrapped up in just knowing what the set that the graph graph forms, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, like, can you explain why a graph is a set? Surely, yeah, because it's just going to be the list of order pairs. Right? So if you mm-hmm. took all the order pairs and you sandwiched them between some curly brackets, as we do, mm-hmm. you'll get a set. Right? Because a, a, a set is just a fancy curly bracket. Just You just throw some things between curly brackets. Mm-hmm. Set's almost anything you want to be. That's why it's yeah. the most general math object. And like I said earlier... A relation is just a set of ordered pairs. You might have noticed, like Matt literally just said the same thing for a function. It's just a set of ordered pairs. But in this case, you need that specific 
quality that if you have one input, if you have a, a, an ordered pair in your set, the, the first input cannot be repeated twice, right? And that's pretty much, that's pretty much all the information you need. If you, because if you have every single input and their outputs, then all, you know, you probably can't do it by hand, but you know, if you have a computer, mm -hmm. boom, you get the graph. But one thing that I kind of realized, which was kind of like naive of me to think before I, I got to university, but like for some reason in my head, every single function was somewhat nice. You know what I mean? Like there's maybe there's a hole in, in, in the function or there's an asymptote or something like that. But like things were, you know, somewhat piecewise continuous at all times. But when I got to first year, you know, you encounter things like uh, the floor function and things like that. And also the function that we use oftentimes um, to like, this is often used to provide a counterexample to, to some things. And it's the function where it's zero if you're rational and it's one when you're irrational. And that kind of broke my brain when I first saw it. So I was like, how, how is this a, a function? But you think mm -hmm. about it in the most like simple sense and you're like, yeah, I mean, it satisfies all the conditions you need to be a function. So yeah, I, guess, I mean, I guess it is a function. Mm -hmm. The delta function. Yeah, very, I mean, there, there's so many different types of uh, functions that I guess... I guess I guess we may we may be able to touch into today. I, yeah. I mean I don't know if we're getting to the specifics, but we're just talking about mainly the beauty of functions itself, right? Mm -hmm. So like uh, you were talking about, <clears throat> so functions, and I think the beauty nature, especially because now now we're we're talking about okay we have inputs, we have outputs, we have these sets. We're starting to understand a little bit more about well what does a function do at the end of the day, right? So it becomes even more interesting, right? When we're moving away from these ordered pairs and into, I don't know if it's, tri it's uh, but, or, or more than pairs, right? Or, or tuples, ordered tuples, exactly, right? When we're talking about multiple inputs leading to either one output or multiple inputs leading to multiple outputs, or there's so many, so many different variations of that, right? And functions can be really, really wonky in that way too. And they can describe some really interesting um, models, right? That we see in nature. So I think I think uh, functions, at least in that in the, in that respective, definitely helps us model real life, and also you know starts to understand a little bit more about how again things are related to each other because that's that's in, in, again the essence, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, one thing that I remember, like being in high school and learning about functions is that it's it seems a little bit mysterious at first because they kind of just introduce to you they're like okay this is x squared and then you see the graph and you're like okay i think i i really unlocked like kind of like a, a bird's eye view of functions once i just kind of took i i understood that it's just like it's just a rule you know, it's just like, as if someone came up to you and said, you know, if you, if you, if you give me this, I'll give you this. Mm -hmm. And then you just kind of take the entirety of your domain. And then the graph is just as if you were to transform all the inputs all at once. Right. Yeah. Which is kind of hard to, to 
to digest, I think, as a high school student. Because I remember seeing the graph and I'm like, the graph is like like the, the object itself. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really kind of... This is hard to explain because like this is how I felt before, but mm-hmm. now I know how I feel how now. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. But yeah. 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 And yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah, no, I was... Um... I was going to say it you it becomes this up and down where you start thinking okay the function is the graph then you get to second year and you go they're separate they are and then you go wait they're the they've been the, the same thing the whole time mm-hmm. do you see what I'm saying yeah. and that's why it's always really useful to just think about the function in terms of the graph i mean the vertical line test generalizes immediately you get the vertical plane test you slide it mm-hmm. right and that's something that ray was saying where you take two inputs in that point we look at a function taking two real numbers and spitting out one. Maybe it's just adding them up. Maybe it's squaring both and then adding them up. Maybe just multiplying them together. Whatever the rule is, taking these two real numbers and associating it to a unique third. Not a unique third, but loosely speaking. Okay, we already did that. <laughs> Anyways, it just immediately generalizes, even visually, right? Because when you take these ordered tuples, right, if you take two inputs, one output, write them all down, you get a triple. But ultimately, if you view this input as one object, as it was, because that was your input, and then this output is one object, it's just a tuple again. You just have these two and this mm-hmm. one. Do you see what I'm saying? Because ultimately, they are and will always be just ordered pairs. They're always pairs. One from the input, one from the output. The input could consist of multiple things, i.e. five real numbers, but if you write them all in one little thing, it's one thing. Mm-hmm. Right, because right. that's the, what you're doing tuple, in multivariable calculus. Yeah, the tuple of the input becomes a single element in the exactly. ordered pair. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, back to what I was even saying, it was it's the graph is it's all there because it has every tuple, it has every tuple, mm-hmm. and you can see exactly how they're related. The input is on the left. This is the left of the viewers, I think, and then this is the right, and this one got transformed into this one. Mm-hmm. It's all there. It's, it's, it's that classic egg, or or not egg or whatever, like that classic, uh, like that algebra notion. When we learn it in high school, you know how like we draw, we write numbers in the left oval and then the table values in the right oval, and then we're oh writing. oh yeah yeah your little yeah, associative like, diagram egg, yeah yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that, that's kind of what I meant. So yeah no, I totally felt that whole thing with you, Parker, when you were initially getting into high school. You know, try like understanding this new world of functions and what they are and different ways to understand it. And, you know, so far, especially like in our careers or in our, not our academic careers, at least, you know, we've, we've been through quite a wild ride because we started with very, we started with Y equals some functions of X and we didn't even learn the word function at that time, right? Y equals MX plus B was when we didn't even know what a function was. And then moving on to later and later years in high school, we start to now replace Y for F of X. Like what is, you know? Like stuff like that. And now now we're in university. We're no longer dealing with X, but we're dealing with the fact that X can be a list of numbers. It can be a vector, right? So you're inputting a vector and you could sometimes even get out a vector, right? So it can be some really complicated stuff. And the one step further, I don't know if you want to go to this now, but like um, I, I, I did want to put it up there. One step further from where all of what we are talking about now is, well, what if your input isn't just a variable but what if your input is a function 
Sure. Right? And then you get what, what we call a functional. Very similar to a function. I mean, it's not, it, it, well, it is inherently, yeah. but the interesting thing about this is now this doesn't only depend on a single variable, but it depends on a function that changes with respect to a variable. So maybe we can dive a little deeper into, certainly, I don't know, understanding these higher levels of functions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because ultimately a function is just associating one object with another. That object itself could be a function. That's totally fine. It could be an entire set. It could be literally anything you want it to be. Seriously, mm-hmm. it could be a, a weird set that's kind of ugly and chopped up, which could be a set of real numbers, which you can picture as a weird potato in R3 if you'd like. Or it could be a equally weird set just of functions. If you just picture all sine waves, if you take the origin, take a sine wave, the standard one, just sine x, mm-hmm. and then shift it up by a constant and let that constant vary from negative one to one. So sine x plus c for c and negative one to one. You yeah. get this continuum of functions. You could pump that entire set through a function if you want. Right? Like you could do whatever you want to do. And functionals are really important in that they give birth to what's called functional analysis, which is something you're going to see in fourth year if you do a pure math degree but they're really important they talk about Hilbert spaces which is um everyone here cares about physics is the kind of language of quantum mechanics a lot of the time right we work on l2 which is a set of square integrable functions don't worry about what that means means that it doesn't get too big for lack of a better word and its probability is normalized which is really important for quantum mechanics i'm going to assume the viewers you know a little you know a little bit of probabilistic foundations of quantum. Anyways, your work point is all the wave functions live in that space. That's a set of functions. And those are the wave functions given a bit more conditions, but whatever. Mm -hmm. So this is another instance of where we're not just talking about functions taking things and spitting them out, but we could just talk about a set of functions itself and then do things with them, right? That's like all of what the current quantum model kind of looks like i'm speaking so heuristically but i don't, I don't think there's the quantum police on me today i hope because <laughs> like yeah. a function space similar to yeah, what you're talking absolutely about, a function right? space exactly. functions that's what l2 is the square integrable functions defined on blah 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 mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. So right understanding yeah because yeah. functions are a whole lot more than just being able to associate somebody's height with their age or something like that you know yeah we might only care about functions with what we can do with them, not even what they input or output, which is kind of the wave function, right? We only really, I don't want to say that. It's a little bit of a stretch. But oftentimes, we just like to integrate it to get probabilities, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. One, that would yeah. be the wave function in particular. But yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, those ones at least. I mean, I'm sure maybe in your first year quantum courses, you maybe evaluated it at some points, like, capital psi of zero and stuff like that but alt- oftentimes you just take its modulus squared and then start doing things mm-hmm. right yeah that's yeah. right and and matt with your with your wise experience <laughs> and, and all even... that what um what do you think are some like some of the most interesting functions that you've seen isometries okay i'll Split. say I'll, i'm gonna break down what that means it's two things isometry Metric kind of sounds like metric. It means size. You can measure it. Iso means same. Equivalent. That's why you hear the words, uh, what's it called? Uh, isomorphic. Isomorphic, blah, blah, blah. Stuff like this. So isometry is same size. 
So what that does, we'll do it in a linear algebra sense because everyone here knows basic linear algebra. Think of a vector, pardon me, a, func a transformation that takes a vector and maps it such that the norm of the vector is equal to the norm it started at. Mm -hmm. That's an isometry where it's norm preserving. The norm doesn't change when you do it. So okay. let's think about a, a way to think about that. Let's take a, a vector on the unit circle. So a unit vector, mm -hmm. norm one. Picture an isometry. Can it stretch it? No. Can it shrink it? No, because it has to keep it the same length. It just rotates it around. Mm -hmm. This is a form of an isometry, right? Where these become really useful is when you do this on functions themselves. So you don't just do this on vectors. You might want to associate a, a form of size to a function itself and then talk about isometries between function spaces so that so, the function doesn't grow or shrink as it goes through this functional, right? So that's something we do in functional analysis quite a bit. So let's think of a way we can measure a function. You know how to measure a vector. You can associate a length, right? Yeah. So I'm okay. thinking maybe you can take like an interval and then measure like the length of the actual function, right? And then, I had never heard of that, but that's potentially annoying. I mean, that's the first thing that yeah. I thought of. Yeah, because said, there's like, like that formula, function. right? Like using the integral, how to like find the arc length in an interval. So like of, of a graph, yeah. A similar. Yeah. Right. So we need a norm first. Because mm -hmm. norm is how we're going to define um, measure or the metry part of isometry, mm -hmm. right? And so we know how to find norms for vectors. That, that's a well-defined thing. You can think of Euclidean okay. norm, right? Now, what if we generalize outside of just Euclidean spaces? We want norms there too. I.e., if we look at a function space, like the space of all wave functions, what if we want to assign a size to a wave function? The same way we assign a length to a vector. So we might define a norm, a type of function in and of itself, which is really cool, that takes a function, spits out a real number that describes its size. The same way your norm takes a vector and spits out a real number that is its length. Oh, we've actually seen this. You have Ray, seen some function norms. You've probably do you seen remember this? We saw this actually in the very first unit of 237 when we were taking the norm we literally took the norm of, of two functions where it's like there's two angle brackets and then the two functions with a comma in between and then it's like it defined like the inner product yep between oh, the two is that what you're but it was saying? actually like oh the that's integral this, oh, that's of the norm square argument roots. yes oh, that's the inner product yeah so the okay, inner, well, an inner did... yeah so what's great about that is an inner product always induces a norm but it doesn't necessarily go the other way so for example, if you take the dot product in R3, you guys know that the square root of the dot product is the norm, right? You mm -hmm. guys seen that, right? Yes, yes, so, yes of course. Yeah, that, yeah, that's always gonna hold. Yeah. So if you have an inner product, which is a function in and of itself, that satisfies a whole bunch of conditions, then you can take the square root of it and you'll get a norm. So great. So any inner product space, a space in which that admits an inner product, you can immediately get a norm. Okay, cool. So I'm trying to not go too crazy here. But now let's say we have a norm and it measures the size of functions, size. Then when we pump it through an isometry, it should come out the same size. It's not the same function, but it's a function of the same size. Why is that important? Well, if your norm describes some form of integral, right? So picture a, maybe a bell curve then picture a function that takes this bell curve and stretches it up, but squeezes it down a little bit. The integral underneath stays the same. So if the norm was just the area under the curve, 
you would see that whatever transformation did this is an isometry. It didn't change the size if you define the size to just be the area under the curve, right? So these mm -hmm. types of things are important. I, I'm not saying that the area under the curve is a well-defined norm at all, but we can generalize this idea of size. And then we might want to talk about functions that preserve size, like rotations. Mm -hmm. What's the same as a rotation in a function space? These are important things to talk about. And those are isometries, which are some of my favorite functions. So that's a long-winded answer to what your question was. Like, what are some functions you care about? I care about isometries. At least Wait, a bit. So yeah. Do you know of like, what, like, what's a way that we can define the norm of a function? Like, what is the size of a function? Well, you can take, you need an inner product first, at least for our purposes. Let's just, we're going to only work with norms that are induced by inner products. Okay. But inner product of the function and... Another function. So oh, you take a, another, take okay. a set of functions. Okay. It could be the set of all wave functions. We want to define an inner product first. We'll do that first. We want to define a function that takes two functions, does something to them, angle brackets, right? Mm -hmm. It spits out a real number. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once we can do that, we can just square root that function. We'll get a norm. Don't ask why, but that always works. If you have an inner product first. Okay. I love that. Yeah. Don't ask why that always like that. Oh, it's not more complicated. It's not that, it's not that so, hard to actually prove that, that once you have an inner product, if you square root it, you'll get that the square root of the inner product satisfies all the conditions a norm should. But we, for right now, we'll just take a space of functions, get an inner product first, angle brackets, mm -hmm. that will induce a norm. And then cool, we have a, we have a way of associating a size to a function. Mm -hmm. well, okay. Intuitively, yeah. um, if you're talking about like the inner product between vectors, the inner product is just a measure of how aligned the two vectors are. And so if you think about like the same notion for, for functions, if you take, um, uh, the inner product between a function and itself, you already know that the function is already aligned with itself. So the result is just kind of the square of its size. And so taking the square root, you just get its size. Hopefully. Exactly. Yeah. yeah That's hopefully. a fine, fine way to think about it. Right. So the most elementary inner product you're going to see is take two functions, multiply them. So take F and G and then integrate FG mm -hmm. with respect to whatever measure you like. FG. That it defines a well-defined inner product. Then the norm will just square root it. Right? Mm -hmm. So if you do it norm of F with F, you'll get the norm, pardon me, inner product of F with F, you'll get integral of F squared. Now take the square root of that whole thing, and that's the size of F. So cool, we have and a norm on a function space now. You would integrate over its entire domain? Yeah. If that could be a real value that could be an arbitrary measure space but still so th this is yeah, a, no, that... the most standard way to get an inner product in a relatively nice function space so the isometry then in itself it is a function yes you want to okay. take a function f put it through the isometry oh, take a function f take its norm Write it down. So the isometry is a and functional. Then, is that is, is yes? That, is that right? It's exactly right? what it is. Okay. It's exactly what okay. it is. That yeah. is what it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. A little. I think. I think. Okay. I just wanted to understand 
the relation, like what exactly is isometry? Because it sounded like I, yeah. a cool word. I wasn't sure if it was yeah. describing. Is, okay. Isometry is just it shows up in linear algebra, period. When we're doing functional analysis, that's not quote unquote linear algebra because it's infinite dimensional. So it's not going to look like most of what linear algebra looks like, i.e. the basic notions of a basis. You have instead like a Hilbertian basis, stuff like this. But anyways, um, you always have isometries defined wherever you have a norm. The most standard place you see those are in linear algebra, right? But those exist in metric spaces, period, right? The, the cool, what I think is kind of funny and I've noticed is the first two years where you're doing all your work, RN, for mostly mm -hmm. CN sometimes if you're... Mm -hmm. Anyways, we're doing our end. It's a complete metric space. It's a sigma. It's a sigma finite measure space. It's a vector space. It's an inner product space. It's so everything it's nice. in one. It's ridiculous. It's the nicest thing ever, because it you have norms and you have inner products and you have limits and you have. So there's so many yeah. things that we don't even realize how easy it yeah. is for us. Is what you're well, I mean, it all generalizes out where you go. Okay, what's one nice quality about RN? It has a well-defined distance notion. Okay, I'm just going to define general spaces that have well-defined distance notions and just work there. They might not have other stuff that's really nice, but let's just take that one part. Or you could talk about its completeness, Cauchy sequences converging. You could just study that in and of itself. You could talk about just spaces with an inner product. Maybe they don't have well notions of limits and stuff like that. And you can just go study one, those inner product spaces. One thing that I can't really wrap my head around is like, how do you find a space that you can't take inner products in. I see what you're saying. I mean, if you're looking to construct, well, what type of space? You're talking about a vector space? Yeah. Or any space. Yeah, like a where vector space. Where there is no such well-defined inner product? Yeah. I'm sure you could find a pathological, pathological counter example. Yeah, but you probably don't know it from the back of your head. But, you no, know. certainly yeah, not. One exists. <laughs> One exists is what you're saying, though. Um, well, one well, oh well, now it gets it gets more into the algebra of the whole thing, apparently. But it has I'm to do with the underlying field and stuff like that. Wouldn't like some no, like you were saying, like you know, properties of Rn, we can just take individual elements and then apply them. Wouldn't like some properties like simply be intertwined with others? Like, wouldn't like the distance notion? Like again, not that I really know this level. But that's why I'm really asking the question sure. more than saying it. But wouldn't the like the distance notion be intertwined with some other property of Rn, where if I just take the distance notion, I will have to also take this mathematically speaking, or can I just separate them entirely? If you have okay. a norm, yeah. so if you have a norm, yeah. you'll get a metric, a distance. No, I'm saying you were saying you know how like Rn has everything, right? Mm -hmm. Rn has. In this space, mm -hmm. this space, this space, everything, yeah, yeah. everything. So you can just take one of them and make a make a generalized space, and we can work with that. Yeah. So I guess my question is, would would there be any properties where, let's say, you take one of them, but you can't take this without others? I mean, I'm sure. Like I'm that? sure there is because there's mm. yeah, there's there's a topological spaces that are not metrizable. In which case, that means a topological space where there's no such well defined notion of distance that you can put on it right oh so when oh, you take a okay. general topological space there are theorems that tell you when it is metrizable under what conditions does a function that takes two inputs and spit out a real number called the distance or the metric when is that well defined 
it's not for every topological space. It's only for certain ones and they're called metrizable. So there's an example, like RN is obviously a topological space, but it's metrizable and blah, 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 blah. There's a whole bunch of topological spaces that aren't metrizable. Mm-hmm. So there's like one example where you can find a space with no well-defined notion of distance for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But real quick, yeah, for our listeners, we know you yes. love functions. We know yes. you love math. All right. So <laughs> this, is, this is the perfect segue here. But um, (laughs) make sure to check out brilliant.org. You know we love Brilliant. Why? Because when when we learn math, when we learn physics, all these things, you have to, you know, you learn the theory and you have to apply it, right? You have to practice, do exercises. Well, Brilliant has algebra courses, courses on functions, multivariable functions, as we've been talking about today. And, uh, you know, everything is in interactive, right? So you, you learn something about functions, boom, they hit you with some quizzes, they hit you with some multiple choices where you can actually practice your knowledge and actually learn the content. And for your the first 200 people out there for the 200 listeners who uh, go down description below and most likely in the comments as well brilliant.org slash mpp first 200 listeners to sign up get 20 percent off their premium subscription how insane is that how insane is that absolutely and interestingly insane. enough this very month and i believe i mentioned this last time as well they have added some crazy new interactive courses where all of their linear algebra their functions all their math courses there's actually instead of just answering like quite there's actually a whole level of interactivity that they added to the website so there's like a whole new thing that they've done. So, you know, go check it out. See if you like it. Why not? Because it might be good for you. Boom. Okay. So <laughs> nice segue there. Um, one thing I did want to continue, though, because we were talking about these these higher level, higher level notions of functions and stuff like that. I have an answer for a previous thing while you guys were okay, doing the... Okay, let's hear it. Let's hear it, it, let's was, hear it. Uh, it was when are like, can you have a space that doesn't admit a inner product? So can you okay. just get a vector space with no inner product? So it turns out if your field, I don't know if how familiar viewers are with the uh, construction of vector spaces, point is you pick a field first and then you do a vector space on top of the field, which is your field of scalars. So Rn, the field is R, where you mm-hmm. scale by real numbers and stuff mm-hmm. like this. If your field is the real numbers or the complex numbers, you'll always have an inner product. Okay. Turns out if that, so that's basically all, not basically all, but ones you'll study, you're usually going to have a field of R or C. When you don't have that field, then things can get weird. But mm. for those fields, you can always get an inner product. So anyways, okay. there you go. There you go. Nice. Okay. Please continue So though. we have that answer. So we have that answer. That's okay, what it no, seems from just, here, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to ask, well, we were talking about like your favorite function and like we got into understanding that. I was just trying to understand like if there are any other types of functions like in this. Because again, we're still, I don't know, because I think getting it because before university i thought i knew more math than where i am now you know what i mean because i didn't know how much math there is to know when i was Mm. in first year and now certainly i know how much there is to know and i know how much how little i know compared to that (laughs) you know what i mean so like there's less almost that i know now so i guess i guess continuously like like another question would be like is there another function that does you know something like I guess isometry to me at least is a little advanced. 
So would it be in some regard, like does something and spits something out that's a little beautiful in terms of mathematical relationships? Certainly. So the isometry is a great example, right? Now the isomorphism is another amazing example, right? So what do we mean by that? Iso again means same. Morphism means to change or to morph or to shift or to transform, right? So you guys are familiar with that word, but just a quick disclaimer. If instead you take a normal function set and set domain, codomain, function relationship between them, right? Now, if that function is bijective, i.e. injective and surjective, right? Then what we do is we have a path here and we have a unique path backwards, right? Mm. That's what bijective means. Invertible, mm. isomorphism, bijection, all synonyms for our case, right? For space of vector spaces, stuff like this, okay? Mm-hmm. All that does is mean function already gives you a unique path to an output. It doesn't take you to two places. It's one path. That's the function. Mm -hmm. Having the bijectivity means you get a unique one back. You don't have two paths back, right? Mm -hmm. So what that means is I have a one-to-one correspondence from every element in here to every element in here. So you, the one-to-one is just the injectivity, but the reason notice I said two things, one-to-one and every element. That's the surjectivity, the every element part, because the codomain is the range. So everything here, I can go this way, get a unique thing. And everything here, I have a unique path and go this way. That just means you have a well-defined inverse, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the concept of isomorphism. If I can just uniquely associate from here to here, this guy is this guy, and this guy is this guy, and this guy is this guy, then I have a perfect correspondence between two sets. If I understand this set, I understand this set because I have a little path. Mm-hmm. And if I understand this set, I understand this set because I have a path back too, right? So then that's when we say the spaces are isomorphic because they are the same via this transformation, right? So what would be an example of that? Yeah, so isomorphic vector spaces, right? What if you want to be able to say, okay, these vector spaces, they're pretty similar because anything I do here, I can just twist it or stretch it by this isomorphism and reap the same properties, right? That's kind of what I want to be able to do, say, between vector spaces, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not immediately obvious when you can do that or moreover, just topological spaces. One or two things like basically the same thing. The coffee, the, uh, the coffee cup, cup and the donut thing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Right, that's a homeomorphism right? And which is like the topology's version of a isomorphism. It has a continuity tip to it as well, but doesn't matter. The the concept of isomorphism extends beyond vector spaces. It just means when can I get an equivalence of two objects within the field of math I'm working with? When are two Mm. topological things equivalent sets, for lack of a better word? When are two um, measure spaces equivalent? When are two groups equivalent? right? A group of isomorphism or a homomorphism, where we have fancy words for these things, but ultimately in each field of math, we want to associate things and we do them via that world's isomorphisms. They all have fancy names. Top topologies, isomorphisms are called homeomorphisms. Group theories, isomorphisms are called group isomorphisms or homomorphisms, right? Vector spaces, isomorphisms are just called isomorphisms. So yeah. that's where people kind of get confused because they it's a far bigger thing than just that, 
So for example, you would think that CN, the set of all ordered, or just any Euclidean space, okay. Anything where you order N tuples of objects, mm -hmm. right? You would hope that those are all isomorphic, pardon me, isomorphic to RN. Because I don't care what you're listing. If I list another thing, I should be able to go like this, loosely speaking. Right. Right, so I guess that's like a heuristic answer to your question, Parker. Like, what is isomorphic in that sense? Mm -hmm. Any Euclidean space is... That's literally what we define to be Euclidean space. Is something isomorphism, isomorphic to Rn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we were talking before the podcast about uh, your study in uh, probability theory. And uh, mm -hmm. could you maybe list a function or two that's you know interesting enough to mention here on the podcast that comes from your your time studying uh, probability absolutely theory. i'm gonna do two one super basic one a little scary but it ties yeah. into what we talked about before so it, it should, right. maybe you'll get some out of it the first one is literally just the probability function it's a function that takes in a set and spits out a number between zero and one mm -hmm. why does that make fine sense because you want to assign a probability to a, an event, which is a subset. You want to assign a probability of its occurrence. And that probability should be, be between 0 and 1. Like 25%, 50%. You don't want a probability of 2 that doesn't really make that much sense. Right. Right. So if you view it like functional notation, P maps from the set of all subsets. Not all of them. But if you're working with a discrete space, yes, all of them. Usually called the measurable subsets. And it spits out a number between zero and one, right? Mm. And, and the that's probability, what, yeah. Sorry, the probability function is an integral, right? In it can be, it oh. certainly can be. When you have a density, when you have a probability density function, yeah, you're going to integrate the density okay. over blah blah blah. But I don't want to define the probability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. and that's what you're doing in quantum mechanics. What you're doing is you have. Um, wave functions and then you want to know probabilities or pardon me have particles really you want to know probabilities of their physical properties lying between a given range and then you have probability density functions of which you can integrate over subsets and that is what's assigning a probability so you define the probability function so p of a subset a is the integral over the set a of the density and then you get a number between zero and one that's the whole normalization condition. There's a reason why you want your wave functions to integrate to one. It's because they are probability density functions once you take the modulus squared. And you don't want P of anything to be greater than one. So when you integrate the mod squared over the entire domain, you can't have it get bigger than one because that would make no sense. And you have 101% chance of something happening, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what you're seeing. Once you take the mod squared of a wave function, you get its density with at least respect to its position often is what you're kind of doing. So that's a probability function. It's a mm. thing that assigns a real number between zero and one to a subset of another Correct space. Correct me here before you move on to your second function. Yeah. Isn't a probability function and the probability density function synonymous? Like, aren't they basically the same thing? Like the probability function itself is just... The density times like the variation or something? Like Great question. The density function itself, right? Phenomenal question. If you have a density, you can find probabilities by integrating the density over subsets. I'll repeat that. that if you have a density, you can integrate that density over subsets and get the probability of that subset. Okay. 
Not all probabilities have densities, though. There's the issue. It's wonderful when they do, because we know how to compute integrals. Riemann taught us in the 1800s, right? But when you don't have a density, it's a whole nother story. Most often, especially in physics and stuff like that, you have densities. And there are theorems in measure theory that tell you when you have a density. Okay? So if you have a density, you can think of it as the probability if you'd like, because you just integrate it. They're roughly equivalent in that sense. But not all probability functions have a density. Yeah. But would you have like an example where I do. I do. there's a probability and not a density? Because I'm just trying to think yes. of how that even makes intuitive sense. So a Dirac point mass is a beautiful example of this. So let me get a, I want to get the exact definition here. So I don't no, go for it. Loosely speaking, chintz uh, our viewers here. One second. It's the kind of the classical example where you have, um, here it is. So take a real number, call it alpha. Okay. And define the probability of a subset of the real number line to be one if alpha is in that set and zero otherwise. Okay, so let's take alpha equals one. Put close your eyes, picture the real number line and a little tick at one. Now let's take the set zero to two open, open brackets. The probability of that set is one. Okay. <laughs> now let's take the set two open brackets to five. Probability of that set zero. Why alpha's not in it? That's just how we define the probability. Okay. It's kind of like the what do we see in uh in the in the Jacobian there, Parker? Uh the the chi um uh, uh, uh oh the oh I know what you mean. The something that, function. That function that basically the, is, it is the characteristic one if it's on function? the set zero if it's not. I think it's called the characteristic function. Characteristic was it was something like that that we learned very recently. But yeah, I mean anyways, yeah, continue. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we kinda understand the idea. Yeah. Yeah, point is if you do yeah, it's similar to it's similar to a characteristic, right? Like Oh, so it you, is a characteristic. That, that is the name of it. Not quite. Not quite in this case. But oh, okay. point is if you take this function, this probability function, and then you try and you do some math, i.e., suppose there exists a density, you'll find a contradiction. Intuitively, okay. intuitively it's because it's assigning a probability of one, which is the max, to just any set that contains it. Mm -hmm. Right? And you guys know basic integral inequalities. Let's say you integrate over the set zero to two. This is alpha in the middle right here at one. This has a probability of one. Now let's integrate over the set. Right? This is a strict mm -hmm. subset of this set. When you integrate over this one, you would expect that the integral is greater than this one, but it's not. They're both one. So things start getting problematic and you but can hold show on. that density doesn't exist. When you integrate, wouldn't you get zero because it has like a measure of zero? What has a measure of zero? Like, it, like if if you're, you have alpha that has a value of one. Oh, no, you're, we're not. Oh, we're it's not, not integrate. Like no, no, no. There's, okay. You don't know what the density is. So just picture okay. some measurability now. Okay. Yeah, so you, you just have some positive integrable functions chilling above the x-axis. Okay. Integrate over this subset and this one, you would expect mm -hmm. that the integral of this one is bigger than this one because that's how integrals are defined, but they're both one if you had a density because the density mm -hmm. should just assign this set and this set a probability of one, right? And it does, and then you get a contradiction. So this but is that this exception. is not the true proof. Like if you, this no, is but like this a is basic, like, basic, like... like, like but, but this is an exception yeah. to that. To yeah, a lot of... It has a probability function, but not... 
a density. Okay, that's a lot of basically almost everything you encounter will have a density. Almost everything, even what I work, everything has a density. In fact, you define the distribution of things just in terms of the density. You just give, you say, here's a random variable and here's its density, and then work, right? Mm-hmm. It's only weird, weird, weird stuff um, that won't have a density. I'm sure some pathological mathematician would be like, that's not true because I don't think this is weird and it doesn't have a density. I disagree, <laughs> but I'm, I'm new to this, so. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that was that first part, right? That first interesting yes. function that you would learn from your probability, probability functions. Exactly. Probability functions. Your probability course or yes. your research. We'll say that loosely. Directly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, disclaimer, not an expert. Anyways, uh, <laughs> the next function is an isometry in and of itself. It's a little bit hairy, but the reason I thought it would be cool to introduce because we already talked about isometries, mm-hmm. right? It's called a Gaussian white noise. You guys have heard the words white noise before, probably, or you could just think about it into it means like blurry signal, right? Sure. Great way to think about it. We're talking about randomness ultimately. So you can think of a white noise as sort of trying to quantify some mess up in a signal if you'd like, Mm -hmm. right? Now, what we do is we can define a Gaussian white noise to be a function that's going to take a map that's square integral L2 right? Square integral over some measure space. So function that can be integrated kind of nicely. Okay. It's going to take that one and spit out a centered Gaussian random variable, i.e. a a function that's real valued, that maps from a probability space of whose density is a bell curve. Okay. Yes, the space that it lives in is a little bit fancier, but that's what it's doing. It's taking this and it's doing this. Random function spitting out a Gaussian uh, a centered Gaussian random variable, but mm-hmm. it does so isometrically with respect to the L2 norm. And I'll let me explain what that means. Oh, so you take the L2 norm of F, pardon me, not yeah, the L2 norm of this measure space, put it through, it's equal to the L2 norm in the probability space that it just went into. So norm F from its home L2 norm equals norm g of f of its l2 norm in the probability space why is that significant because the l2 norm in the probability space is the expectation value that's why we care so what that does is it allows you to know probabilistic things about this random variable given just measure theoretic things about its domain that's the whole point of iso anything isomorphic isometry iso blah you want to know about this space leverage your knowledge of this one or vice versa. That's the whole point of ISO, they're the same. So I should be able to do some work over here and conclude over here, or do some work over here and conclude over here. So if I wanna know expectation values of where this function is sending, or pardon me, expectation values of the outputs of this function, I can take measure theory integrals and blah, blah, blah over here, which is what's kind of nice. So that's what the white noise is doing. It might not sound intuitive based on just the name white noise, like what does that have to do with a white noise or like a signal blur or stuff like that? But once you define Brownian motion in terms of these Gaussian white noises, these isometries, as a sequence of them, doesn't matter, stochastic process, blah, 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 it, it becomes a bit more clear. But point is, I, that's an interesting isometry that uh, I've been working with because it provides a very unique construction of Brownian motion. That is not the one you'll either see in a uh, StatMech class. It's not the one you'll see in probably even a first probability class. It's a kind of a 
unique one because you can use Gaussian white noise terms in uh, stochastic differential equations and other things. So it's a unique thing that I got from this book that I was doing this summer because I had seen Brownian motion before and I was like, what is this Gaussian white noise? Like, this is not the canonical construction at all. This is like a weird, what is this isometry? Why do I care? Mm-hmm. And then I saw that it created a interesting way to think about the Brownian motion that's ultimately equivalent to the standard one, for lack of a better word. And so, yeah, that's an isometry that's imperative to the construction of the Brownian motion in this book. And um, if anyone, if the, if the viewers care, this book. Okay, so for the listeners there, that's... Maybe uh, read the read title. title for... Yeah, so for the listeners, it's... <laughs> It's called Brownian Motion, Martingales, and Stochastic Calculus by Jean-Francois Legal. It's 274 yeah. in the GTM series, Graduate Text and Math series. Beautiful. Oh, Anyways, that's that graduate so, level book that you were reading. Yes, yes. That's oh, what I was that's telling the you. graduate one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that tough one. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a, it's a toughie. I'm, I'm not good at it at all. I'm just, this is a good opportunity for me to knowledge test, guys. Putting me on the spot. I hope my supervisor's not tuning in. I'm playing. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, that's but that's an isometry. Thing. That's a cool example of an isometry used in the wild, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. Used in probability. Yeah. yeah. Even though I first saw it in my second year linear algebra. Like I saw it in 247. For mm-hmm. you listeners, that's the second semester um, linear algebra that you take as a math spec at U of T. Anyways. Mm-hmm. So that's where I first saw isometry. Wait, two forty-seven. Oh, you. Oh, you mean the advanced linear algebra? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, shoot. Yeah. Oh, you took that one. Oh, okay. I did so two two like... four first though. I did two two yeah, four okay, first. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm yeah, like yeah. that would be. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I did two two four first, and then I did two forty-seven afterwards because kind of needed it. But um, that's where you guys, if you took two four seven, that's where you see all the inner products in the abstract, how inner products induce norms. Hence, now we know what a norm is. So what's an isometry? Blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. All of the stuff we're talking about today is things you would see in 247, to be honest. Yeah. Wow. So that's why I'm a huge advocate for 247. I, uh, yeah. yeah. As a as a physics uh, a specialist, I will not be touching that. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think we're gonna be diving too deep into the math spec world anytime soon. But no, I respect. <laughs> yeah, no. As a as a former physics physics guy i respect you guys because i the physics was getting harder for me the math was making more sense and the physics was making less and i was like okay man those people i really get amazed by people like that the math gets easier and the physics man i I don't know the physics was harder to me because i thought the problems were like more up to interpretation and a bit harder to read but my guy my friends who are in physics they're like it's a skill to interpret physics problems if that makes sense because they can be ambiguous sometimes because it's a physical scenario ultimately math problems just the statement is usually pretty black and white because just like prove this thing explicitly no that's a valid point so it's a point from anyone yeah that's a really valid point i usually do better problems are up to quite a lot of interpretation yeah and that's why i noticed i was having trouble because i was like the type of person who needs every last detail to really understand it often, often. And math could give me that far ready, more, more readily than physics could often. Cause I would get like a quantum piece that I'm like, man, what does this even ask? And then my friend who's a physics guy is like, Oh, this is what they're assuming. Like, you, you, you know, just start doing this. And I was like, Oh, why did they just say that? And he's like, yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> we, we have those talks so yeah. often. Parker and I have those talks 
every problem set. So then no, the, I think I think we know what you're going through. For yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that maybe if once you can interpret the question, the solution's a bit easier often. Yeah. But that's if you can like see through the matrix of the problem itself. I don't know. But that's so I was that's where the fun lies. <laughs> I know. <laughs> going on the hunt for the answer. yeah exactly right the, 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 that was my that would be my counter argument mm. to like the physics argument like that like the, the fact that it's up to interpretation is the whole reason why i like it you know i feel you there because it's up to interpretation anyone can think like that also means that you don't have to think about the same problem in in one way right you can think about one problem in so many different ways and i guess i guess that is true to a certain extent in math but also to a certain extent it's not because after yeah. a certain, like, there is quite, it's a certain amount of things that you have to do for this problem. But in physics, yes. they're like, oh, you can use Lagrangian mechanics. You can use Newtonian mechanics. You can use whatever you want. It still works. Yeah. You know, so there are just so many options available, which I guess would be the counter argument. But yeah. Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, it's just how your brain works. It's literally just how your brain works. It wasn't work. It was, that's not how mine worked while I was getting there. So I was like, okay, we'll make the, also, it was just what was fascinating. Math, right? It was fascinating me a bit more on other ends and stuff like that but yeah anyways those are two functions that I was looking at this summer that i thought were really really interesting i hope i'm making a good case for people to care about probability yeah i'm not talking I mean, about think, it from a stats yeah. perspective though which i think is cool because the viewers know ray that you know you have a stats background and i'm talking about it only from a math background so this is like cool to talk i like talking to stats uh people about it quite a bit because they have a lot more knowledge on techniques they have a lot more knowledge on applications and other things like yeah, that. Yeah, not the not the abstract, like not the math, but like yeah. more of the yeah, I know I feel you, I feel you. Yeah, I understand that. Mm -hmm. And like that got kind of discussion can always be fueled, right? So yeah. I guess that's basically all that we had to add on functions. I don't think there are any more cool things to really add on top of what we've already had. <laughs> Matt, do you want do you think there's anything else that you want to add on top of what we had, had so you guys have already talked about topology on this show. You guys talked about homeomorphisms before? Ve oh no. No. But very I mean we talked about kind of one time. I think uh you guys Poincaré's conjecture. Oh, that's far more advanced than that. what I was thinking of okay, talking about. But we did But we didn't no oh, it wasn't okay. like that. Like we didn't do it justice like that. It was no. so basic. It was like a 10 minute not even talk on point cut it was oh like okay eight, so oh i thought if you guys you were dive like... into a function or two or like something yeah. like that that'll be, that'll be fine okay i thought you guys did like poincare justice like you guys talked about ricci flow and Riemannian geometry and like all that crazy stuff and nope. i was like wow good, good for y'all man That's, i don't i don't know anything about that okay well i want to do the coffee cup um donut thing for the viewers because i don't know if you guys have already done coffee cup donut Everyone does have. coffee cup donut, but I'll talk about it in just in terms of the functions and a bit more on that side of things. Cause I'm sure yeah. everyone gets the picture of what's happening, coffee yeah. cup donut, but I want to talk about the language that those functions are existing within so that we can tie this back in. So we talked about isomorphisms, some form of equivalence relation, not literally an equivalence relation in the words of math, but talking about things in an equivalent way, ISO, right? The isomorphisms of topology are the homeomorphisms. What are they? Well, Matthew, you told me a little bit ago that an isomorphism was just a bijection. It is for a vector space. For a topological space, it's a bijection that's continuous forward and backward. So a, it's an invertible function that's continuous with a continuous inverse. That's it. Nothing like 
super crazy continuous function of whose inverse exists and is continuous as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how does that tie into coffee cup donut at all? What do we mean by continuous? No tears, no bends, no harsh edges, nice, smooth, tug, twist, squeeze, no rip. That's what we're kind of meaning on an algebraic topology level of continuous transformation, right? So what does it mean for two things to be homeomorphic? Let's talk about like a, what's it called? A donut and a cylinder. How would you go from donut to cylinder? Well, you cut it and unflap it, right? That's not continuous. I cut it right at the beginning, hmm. right? That's why you would, and intuitively, when you look at the donut and the cylinder, you're like, those aren't the same thing. Those are like good. Those aren't it, right? But hmm. if you take like a hot dog and a sphere, you would be like, okay, take the hot dog and just squeeze it and bunch it up and then roll it around. You get your sphere, right? Those are homeomorphic. This part is continuous, squeezing it into a sphere, taking it back into a hot dog is continuous. I just roll it out on the table, right? Yeah. I didn't tear anything. So coffee cup donut, they both have the hole. I can grab the top, squeeze it down. That's continuous. And then redistribute the mass with my hands around the hole that exists from the handle. And I can do that continuously. I never had to rip or break or tear anything or make a harsh edge or, you know what I mean? But now that's just a continuous transformation. What about the homeomorph? What about the inverse stuff? I should be able to go backwards. I should be able to take the donut and go back to the coffee cup. Simple. Take the mass around the hole, hold the hole in place, shift it, shift it, shift it, shift it, shift it. So now you have like a big tumor on one end and a really shell-like handle. It's about to become the handle, the hole of the donut. And now just make a little cup out of that big mass you just took. I did that continuously there and continuously back. That's the whole bijection. I can, it's invertible to begin with. I can even talk about it backwards. And I did backwards and forwards continuously. Mm -hmm. Right? So in the language of functions, what we just did was we found an isomorphism between topological objects, for lack of a better word. But we did so continuously. And so we add homeo. Where homeo means literally same again. Like homo mm. and homeo. Like you guys are familiar with that Latinism, right? Yeah. Mm. No, that was yeah. a great uh, yeah. visualization. Yeah, that was a great, great. I think that's, wow. Like, I mean, I guess it's a, it's a little easier for me because I've also actually, I think it's easier Certainly. for both of us because both Parker and I have seen, like literally seen that, you know, mathematical mm -hmm. thing. We may link like a quick video in the description below. Like, I don't know, or maybe you guys can just search up coffee cup donut it's a very 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 famous thing if you Super haven't heard of it before and the whole joke is oh they're basically the same thing topologically speaking right and that's what you mm -hmm. described and i think yeah for those that have seen even a glimpse of it i think that visual was very calming very very understandable right so i think i think i think that was clean and that was that's a little bit about how functions can also be um be um responsible for transforming objects Right, is was kind of what we just got into, right? So they don't have to have to only be about you know individual inputs and individual um, objects. Or sorry, sorry, not objects. I'm, I'm misusing that word, but it's not about using you know <clears throat> like R or I, like integers or something like that. It's not about that. It's mm -hmm. using the whole object and transforming it to something. Absolutely. New, you know, something that functions can now also do. Yeah, and that's why I think which is pretty cool. if you take just real valued functions, which everyone studies, and they, they just view them as the graph, 
well, let's just do the yeah. topology thing, but let's do it with real numbers. Because that's ultimately what we just did. We took the donut, we can embed that in R3 as a subset of R3. And then as what I mean by when we're shifting mass, we're taking these real numbers and moving them around R3. Pardon me, these triples of real numbers, moving them around R3. Well, let's mm -hmm. just do that with your R to R function. And let's not talk about a graph for a second. Picture x squared. Take one, move it to one. Just picture the real, real number line. Draw a little dot at one, put it through x squared. Does it move? No, it stays fixed. It's a fixed point. Take two, it slides to the right up to four. What you can do is picture the entire real line itself as if it's a piece of string getting stretched out to the right because everything becomes positive when you do uh, x squared. So you can take zero, take the negative hand side of it and flop it onto itself because negative one comes to one, negative two comes to four still and the rest stay fixed. So you're grabbing all of this and flopping it onto the right. For only listeners, I'm grabbing the left-hand side of the real line with my right hand and folding it like taking a straw and going like that and clapping it together. Mm, so that's the topology. Okay. That's what we're doing there with um, just that. Like the, that's the coffee cut donut version of a real valued function. You just picture the same mm -hmm. plasticine, but just being the string that is the real line instead. Right? If you want to talk about whether or not that's continuous... You can do that too, right? Whether or not it's a homeomorphism R into itself, you can tell it's not immediately because it, first of all, you can just think about, is it um, surjective? No, it takes no negative values. But now let's think about that the same way we thought about the coffee cup and donut. You're flopping it on top of itself. It can't be a homeomorphism. I'm gluing. Because if I want to go backwards, I have to tear what I just glued. So mm -hmm. no continuous inverse. See what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So no homeomorphism. That's a great explanation. Right. Mm. You'd have to cut that in half and then bring it back. Right? So you have a continuous one way, but not even because you get a kink at the origin. You get a, if you folded the straw, you'd see a little sharp edge. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's not even continuous one way. Well, I mean, it is, pardon me. I mean, like you can, it's not, I don't want to use the word, the wrong version of continuity here. But you can see how it's not a homeomorphism. Yeah, of no, to like yeah. cutting it. No, 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 that makes yes. sense. That makes like it's continuous. Good, you proved it. You proved it in first year that it's continuous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Anyways, I thought yeah. I wanted to do coffee cup donut in, in real language. In, in stuff. I think yes. I think I'm very happy that we did that. It's gonna be okay. a clip for sure. Okay, cool. Hundred percent. I'm glad. <laughs> All yep. right. So okay. I guess that was everything we had to say about functions today. Indeed. Indeed. If you are listening to the podcast right now, make sure to follow us on Spotify or wherever else you're listening. Make sure to check us out the video on YouTube. Subscribe, like the video, and leave a comment if you want to be the comment of the week. Uh, yeah, this has been episode number 70 with Matt Cater once again. Thank you. Thanks and, for coming uh, on, man. Thanks. No, I appreciate it. It was awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. awesome. So, yeah, I am your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we will see you soon. Bye, guys.